0: And blessed with his presence a couple times, and uh, every time that uh, he swings in, I'm always encouraged by um, his intellectual view on uh, scripture, and so I just appreciate having him here, and uh, thanks for joining us today. All right, thanks very much. Okay. Hey, hey. <clears throat> all right. Thank you very much for having me. It's been about a year since I've been here, I think. Uh, the last time that I preached was the last time that I was here. I always think that I will come more often, but since I live about a half mile that way, but uh, I don't. Just funny that way. So um, as Ben mentioned, my name is Elliot. Uh, I am a uh, friend of Chris's. Uh, We went to Regent College together, and uh, I also go to Bellingham Covenant Church, And um, actually, before I went to Regent, I don't know. Some of you may know this, but I taught English as a second language in uh, Central Europe in a couple of different countries. I taught for a year in Prague and a year in Budapest. And I taught uh, mostly secondary school students, but uh, I had a few kind of other gigs, one of them at a nuclear research facility. So that was fun. and I was working with a Christian organization uh, that kind of placed uh, Christians as teachers in like communist and, and, uh, and former communist countries. And most of us were um, pretty young, mid-20s, uh, just out of college, and um, often didn't have a whole lot of clarity as far as what we were doing with our lives. Uh, and so we would have to make a decision every year whether we were going to come back the next year. Uh, And this decision day was always in kind of late February, early March, and um, I've never seen people pray so hard for guidance. Uh, People were just, you know, spending all kinds of time by themselves praying, just journaling, talking to one another, finding uh, wise counsel or, or trying to find wise counsel when you're all kind of mid, in uh, mid-twenties, uh, just kind of advising each other. Uh, you know, reading tea leaves, inspecting entrails. I don't know if people still do that, but we did. Um, but we were we were looking for any kind of uh, guidance on, on what Uh, What we should be doing the next year whether we should come back and and teach for another year or whether we should um, do something else and uh, personally um, I You know did the same thing that everybody else did. Uh, I I prayed a lot and uh, you know was really open to to God's leading Uh, and I eventually I was really hoping to hear an audible voice you know, Elliot, stay, or Elliot, go. Uh, but I never did quite feel that uh, explicit leading that I wanted to. And so I, I came to decide that, um, that uh, it was okay to um, decide kind of the best I, I knew based on the information that I had. And I eventually decided to uh, leave after my second year there and uh, come to, to Regent College. And that's kind of how I ended up on uh, this, this coast uh, back in 2004. And I'm sure we could, uh, we all could probably tell stories of times when we wanted God to uh, speak, and he uh, didn't, or maybe he didn't the way, quite the way that we want, we wanted him to, uh, or we wanted God to act, and he didn't act in quite the way that we wanted him to. Um, And my story has to do with guidance, but uh, many of our stories and, and some of my stories as well uh, have to do with uh, situations where the stakes are higher, that, that involve pain and sickness, uh, where we want to, to God to act in, in those areas of our lives. So uh, what do we do in situations like that, where we um, are, are in a difficulty and, and we want God to act? Well, to find an answer. Let's look at an episode in the life of the children of Israel just after they uh, exited from Egypt, and I will read it for you. It is Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. And do you guys stand again if I read it? Yes, please stand. <laughs> Okay, Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Please be seated. So let me set the scene a little bit. Uh, Last fall, you did a series here at Lettered Streets on the book of Exodus, uh, but Chris stopped in chapter 15 just after the uh, Israelites left Egypt, and uh, he's actually going to pick up the series again uh, in a few weeks, I think, Uh, but he's going to start with the Ten Commandments. So he skipped over a couple of chapters to kind of Make sure that things would work this fall uh, to do the, the Ten Commandments. And so he, uh, he allowed me to, to preach one of these passages that, that he is skipping over. So um, the Israelites have, by this point in their story, seen God work. They have seen the plagues on Egypt, they have come out of Egypt, they've seen the Passover. They've had their Egyptian friends and neighbors say, here is all my jewelry, have it. They've crossed the Red Sea, they've been Red Sea pedestrians. And when they get into the wilderness, God begins to test them. The first place that they get to, which uh, Chris preached about way back last November, uh, there is water, but it is bitter. It, it's not able to be, um, to be drank. And so Moses calls out to God, and uh, God tells him, toss a, uh, a branch into the water, and it will make it potable. So he does that. Uh, the next place that they get to, there's no food at all. So they complain, they grumble against Moses and against God. And so Moses, again, prays, and God says, I will rain down manna, food that uh, nobody's ever seen before, and every day the Israelites will be able to go out and collect it, and they'll be able to eat that day. So this is the third in a series of episodes in which the Israelites are grumbling about um, when they've gotten to a place and there is Uh, something lacking out in the desert, out in the wilderness. And in this particular test that God tests them with, uh, they respond by making two mistakes when they get to Rephidim. First, they interpret uh, difficulty that they're experiencing as a sign that God has forsaken them. And this is the kind of mistake that it's easy for us to see in other people um, especially when we read the book of exodus and the story is compacted so much we're reading one story after another and we read three straight episodes where the israelites grumble against moses and we see what's the deal with these people don't they have any faith i would do so much better if i were in their situation but it's easy for us to see that in in other people and much more difficult to see in ourselves because uh, our lives are often difficult to, uh, to see patterns in from beginning to end. Uh, it's often hard to, to see in a, a particular situation how God is leading, what God wants us to do. And it's easy to interpret difficulties by forgetting God's faithfulness in the past. And in reality, this difficulty was not just uh, something, a situation in which Uh, God had abandoned them, but God was actually testing them, and God actually explains, or Moses actually explains uh, in a couple of chapters in Exodus 20, verse 20, why it is that God tests his people in the wilderness. Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that The fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The reason why uh, God tests his people in the wilderness is not so that he's just making them jump through random hoops, but it's so that they will uh, revere him, so that they will fear him, uh, so that they will uh, not sin, so that they will grow in relationship to him. So this situation is not as the Israelites thought, a situation where God had abandoned them, but one in which uh, he was testing them. And a little caveat. So I mentioned that this episode of difficulty, of suffering, was an episode when God tested his people. And I do want to clarify that not all suffering, not all difficulty in our lives or in the Israelites' lives is testing. We experience suffering for a a myriad of of different reasons, and they're all. um, We come across them all in the Bible. Sometimes we sit, we uh, suffer because we uh, are are uh, suffering the consequences of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer because we are suffering the consequences of someone else's sin, Uh, and sometimes we suffer because we're simply suffering suffering the consequences of the fact that the world is not the way that God created it to be, Uh, that there is kind of a a fallenness to to the way the world operates now, and it can't necessarily be traced back to a a particular um, event in in our lives. But even though not all suffering is caused, or is is testing, in all suffering, um, we should not conclude that God has forsaken us. So that was the first mistake that the Israelites made, that they interpreted difficulty as a sign that God had forsaken them. And the second thing that they did was that instead of turning toward God in faith, instead they tried to turn the tables and put God himself to the test. It says in uh, verse two that they grumble against Moses, that they've, as they've done twice before, but they actually do more than just grumbling. The previous two episodes list the Israelites as grumbling against Moses, and here they grumble as well, but they quarrel, it says. And quarrel is a a stronger word, a word that's not used in the previous two uh, testing episodes. And uh, quarreling translates a Hebrew word that uh, means basically to bring a lawsuit or to make a formal complaint. So they're not just unhappy with the way Moses is leading them, they are actually, they're lodging a formal complaint and um, wanting to bring a lawsuit against him. And you can also see this from the fact that they wanted to stone Moses. Uh, stoning was not just something that a crowd would do whenever they got together and, you know, uh, decided to to uh, uh, to expel somebody from their from their community to, by uh, killing them, but it was a uh, it was capital punishment in in Israel. It was something that was carried out after uh, a lawsuit. So they wanted to to bring a lawsuit against Moses and to uh, reject him from being their leader. So the Israelites tried to. Uh, as I mentioned, turn the tables and test God. And there's a a difference between uh, living by faith and putting God to the test. When we test God, we try to manipulate him in order to get something that we think we deserve. And actually, Jesus, in his temptation in uh, Matthew chapter 4, in his second temptation, uh, the devil takes him up you may remember, to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and God will, he, he quotes a, a verse from Psalms, God will command his angels concerning you and you will not strike your foot against his own. And Jesus responds to this temptation by saying, you shall not put your God, the Lord your God, to the test. And he's actually quoting a verse from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy Uh, chapter 6, verse 16, where the full verse says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at uh, Masa, referring specifically to this incident. So testing God is holding to, basically holding him to account for not prioritizing our comfort. And this is kind of a, a widespread uh, idea or attitude toward God um, in our day as well. C.S. Lewis wrote a famous essay called God in the Dock, uh, which was collected into an essay collection also called God in the Dock. So C.S. Lewis, when he, uh, he originally gave this as a talk, he was asked about the difficulties in presenting Christianity to modern unbelievers. And one difficulty was the absence of any kind of a sense of sin. And Lewis said, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. And God being in the dock is a way of saying uh, putting God on trial. That's the, uh, in a, a British uh, court system The dock is where the accused sits. So man is the judge, God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench, man is the judge, and God is in the dock. So the Israelites are basically putting God in the dock. They are judging God by their own standards and and finding him wanting. So how does God respond to this? You would expect, or I would expect, that God would respond in wrath, that there would be a charred spot where the Israelite camp used to be in the wilderness. But is that what happened? Well, if we read on, we find that God responds actually by going on trial and by meeting their needs, by showing them uh, patience rather than than anger. So how does God actually go on trial? Well, he tells Moses in this passage to gather the elders. Now, the, ga- the elders are gathered together when there is a trial. They're basically the, the jury, or they were the jury in in ancient Israel. Another sign that God is actually going on trial, that he is uh, receiving this uh, rejection of the Israelites uh, by actually going on trial, is that he tells Moses to take his staff, which is the symbol of Moses's authority, his judicial authority, uh, what he would have when he was meeting out a, a sentence. And another sign that God is, is going on trial is that he says that he will stand before Moses. And I don't know if there are any other places in scripture where God is said to stand before someone else, but I haven't been able to, to find any. Uh, and the reason why it's so rare is that when you stand before someone in, in Hebrew and in scripture, it is Uh, an indication of an inferior standing before a superior, somebody standing before someone else and allowing them to to judge them. So God actually stands before Moses, like someone who's on trial. And it also says that God is standing at or on the the rock when Moses strikes it. And it could definitely uh, be translated at or on, but it, or the NIV actually says that he is standing by the rock, but it could be translated at or on the rock when Moses strikes it. So all this indicates that there's a lot more going on than just the Israelites grumbling against Moses and um, God providing water for them. They are lodging a formal complaint. They're wanting to put Moses on trial and uh, Moses is clear in the passage that in putting him on trial, they're, in fact, putting God on trial as, as their God and uh, finding him wanting as a God uh, who is not doing the things that they want him to do. So God goes on trial. Um, he accepts their verdict. verdict, And you could even say that he, uh, when Moses strikes the rock, he takes the blow of judgment Even when he is not to blame for uh, what the Israelites wanted him to do. And then God graciously makes water flow out to replenish those who even put him on trial. He showed, rather than wrath, he showed patience and kindness. And this, of course, I'm sure you uh, have already been able to, to connect the dots as to how this points ahead to the way God would ultimately deal with, uh, with our putting him on trial at a, at a later date. And in the scripture reading earlier, and from 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes it clear that just like the Israelites, the Corinthians and even all Christians are, in a sense, still in the desert, still in the wilderness, much like the ancient Israelites were. He draws a a parallel between their experience and our experience. And yes, we live after Jesus has been crucified and after he's been raised from the dead. But in a sense, we still live in a time where we have uh, received freedom, but we have yet to enter the promised land. Uh, We are, in a sense, in the desert, uh, much like the Israelites were. And like the Israelites, God has provided for us when we deserved judgment. And it sounds kind of funny when, uh, when Paul kind of interprets Jesus as the rock. Um, when you first read it, you kind of, you wonder how it could possibly be that, that Jesus is the rock. Um, but if you think about Exodus 17 as a trial and as God undergoing judgment and of Moses striking the rock as a, as carrying out judgment, then it doesn't seem so strange at all to think of Jesus as the rock, as, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians ten four. Jesus has uh, taken the blow of judgment uh, that he did not deserve. Uh, he suffered the punishment for sins as the representative of the Israelites and also of us. And. Going even further, he has made water flow out to us. So in John chapter 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which was a big uh, celebration that uh, the Israelites would have every, every year that would hearken back to the time when they were in the wilderness. And um, At the Feast of Tabernacles, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles because they would make these booths to live in to remind them of the time when they lived in tents in the wilderness. But that isn't all about the Feast of Tabernacles that reminded them of their time in the wilderness. There was a water drawing ceremony as part of this this celebration. So the feast would go on for seven days, and every day uh, the high priest would take water from the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and he would lead a procession up toward the temple and he would process around the altar at the temple and he would pour out the water on the altar. And this was a commemoration of when God provided for his people in the desert and also a looking ahead to when God would Uh, fully and finally provide for his people. So, this ceremony would happen seven days in a row, all during the Feast of Tabernacles. The high priest goes to the Pool of Siloam, leads a procession kind of winding its way up toward toward the temple. And then on the seventh day, it was the big day of the festival, just like all the six days before it, the high priest would get water from the Pool of Siloam, lead a procession up, This time, instead of kind of going around the altar once, he would go around seven times while the assembled crowd would sing the Hallel Psalms, which are the uh, Psalms 113 to 118. And uh, it says in John chapter 7, verse 38, that Jesus was actually at this water-drawing ceremony. Remember the water drawing ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles intended to commemorate the wandering in the wilderness. And then Jesus says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty at this water drawing ceremony that everybody's gathered to see, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus is not just the rock. He's also the one who gives us living water, not just literal water as the um, the rock in the wilderness did, but uh, it was a a foreshadowing of what he would eventually do in giving his spirit and giving his refreshment as a sign that uh, God was was present with his people. And so whenever we find ourselves in a difficult situation, like the ancient israelites where we're tempted to put god on trial no matter what we think we need we ultimately uh, i think need the spirit and we can only get it once our rock has been struck and so i'll close with with this i came up with a little rhyme which is kind of corny and kind of trite but hopefully memorable to kind of sum up uh the 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 main thing to to take away from this message and that rhyme is life is a desert filled with tests keep trusting in god and they'll turn out for the best (laughs) so that's really corny but hopefully memorable so let me unpack that for a little bit so remember life is a desert i'm Glad that this is not a prosperity gospel church, because I could never say such a thing in a, in that kind of a uh, a a, uh, a guest preaching opportunity. Life can be a desert, and what God promise, promises to do is not take us out of the desert, but provide for us in the desert. Uh, About a month and a half ago, I went with a group from BCC to uh, Israel. And uh, late June is a very hot time to be in Israel. Uh, And there were several hikes where it was up over 100 degrees. And you could just imagine kind of hiking through uh, this wilderness where you could look around and there were no evident water sources. You just kind of had a, a, a pack on your back with water in it that uh, if you were to run out of water, you would be in trouble uh, very quickly. And it made me think about the times when Scripture says that God will provide for us in the desert uh, by creating streams, or in this very passage, creating water out of a rock. So God doesn't take us out of the desert that we find ourselves in, but he does promise to provide for us in the desert. So what if, when we were in uh, desert places, what if we saw our, our trials as an opportunity to trust that God is with us? And when we want God to act, unlike what the, the Israelites did, what if we saw those those times when we wanted God to act to as an opportunity to look at what God had already done in our lives and in the lives of, of those uh, we love and, and even those who've gone before us, uh, who we, we've heard about. What difference would it make for how we see uh, evil and pain and suffering if we understood that God himself has gone on trial and suffered the penalty for injustice on our behalf. I think if we are able to, to see our times in the desert through that lens, if we're able to see that uh, God has not left us alone and that not only has he not left us alone, but that he, he has gone on trial, uh, we'll be able to, to see that, that our times in the desert will turn out for the best and that doesn't mean that everything will um, be smooth. Uh, Sometimes the things that we are afraid of happening to us will happen. But I think if we are able to see what God has done for us, how he has responded to us when uh, we rejected him or when we uh, have questioned him, we'll be able to endure anything knowing that he hasn't abandoned us and that the water of God's spirit is always available to us. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, I thank you for being patient with us when we have been impatient with you. Lord, I thank you for being kind and merciful when uh, we have wanted to put you on trial, when we have thought that you are not doing a good enough job or that you are not doing the things that we thought a God should do. Lord, we thank you for uh, opening up a fountain in the wilderness for us. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, going forward that we will not complain about you when we're going through a difficult situation but that we will complain to you, (laughs) that we will see it as an opportunity to grow in intimacy with you, and that we will recognize that no matter what we are going through, that you are going through it with us, that you have not abandoned us, And that we never have to ask, like the ancient Israelites asked, is God among us or not? Because we know that you are. Amen.